Hello everyone, welcome back to the One Talk podcast here with your host Ryan McCarthy. Today we are joined by Simon Rin. Simon is a social worker and the founder of Mindful Men. Simon is a therapist to men and he works along the Sunshine Coast and a lot of Southeast Queensland. On this episode, we touch deeply on Simon's journey, how he built a organization as Mindful Men, how he became a social worker, a therapist, and we touched on a lot of his journey, but also tips, tools, and strategies that you can implement for mental health and mindset to get more optimal health for yourself and to become a better version of you. So there is a lot of juiciness in this episode and I'm keen for everyone to check it out. In other news, before we get into today's episode, if you could please share this podcast around with a friend, a family member, even on your stories, it would mean so much in terms of helping this podcast grow and reach a bigger audience and getting this information and resource out there to as many people as we could. If you could also leave the podcast a rating, that would mean a lot too in terms of helping it grow again and just getting this podcast out there. That is much appreciated. But back to this episode, let's welcome Simon. Thanks for joining, Simon. How are you, man? Yeah, good, Ryan. How are you, mate? It's really nice morning up here on the sunny coast. Looking forward to getting out in the sunshine as soon as we've done this. So, yeah, really look, looking forward to being here too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thanks for jumping on, man. And <clears throat> I was standing out in the sun just before this because I live in North Brizzy, so not too far. <clears throat> but I went and stood outside, but it's a beautiful day today. So, yeah, it'd be nice to get amongst it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. The wife's taking the kids down, so I'm looking forward to the next hour or so having some peace because they've been absolutely jumping off the walls. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, looking forward to getting down the park afterwards and then maybe heading out later on down the beach or something like that. Oh, nice, man. Did you grow up on the Sunday coast? No, man, I'm from Adelaide. So ah. grew up in Adelaide and left there after university, moved to Canberra, moved to Hobart, moved to Brizzy, and then the sunny coast the last oh, five or six years or so. So yeah, I think this is home now. I think we've, we're done moving. <laughs> Whereabouts in Adelaide did you come from? Because I used to live in Adelaide. Yeah, so I'm, I grew up in the northern suburbs. So if yeah. you know Parafield Gardens, Elizabeth, Salisbury, oh, yeah, yeah, that's my my old hunting ground. And I guess I guess my story is is informed by growing up in that kind of environment in the eighties and nineties as well, and, and and stuff like that. But yeah, that's where I'm I'm from. Um, haven't been back for a little while. Mum's itching for me to get back and say good day. But yeah, yeah, one day maybe in Christmas time we'll go back and and say hello to friends and family yeah that'll be nice man i am um, i grew up for a few years in Haller cove so not too far from elizabeth in salisbury yeah yeah it's, oh you know exactly what i'm going to talk about then today <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> so touching on that man i'd like to get to know more about you your purpose behind your mission because the mission you're on is an inspiring one to see especially for other people working in the mental health space because even though we have loads of supports out there, it's so important to keep pushing this message, to keep pushing the awareness and keep getting the message out there to the people so that know it's okay to seek support, but then also implement the tools to get better and improve their life as well. So I'd love to begin of how did this journey begin for you, man? It's a long time coming. So I'm in my, I'm clinching on to the last of my thirties. Um, this year I turned 40, but it, it dates back to, I guess, growing up in those northern suburbs of Adelaide um, in the 80s and 90s, um, and we played a lot of sport. So I played a lot of Aussie rules, athletics, basketball, very masculine household, had three brothers plus dad, and everything we did and, and consumed on TV and in sport and at school was around this notion of boys, boys, you know, you know, to grow up and be a man is to be tough, to be 
you know, stealing to not show your emotions and all that type of crap, really, if I'm going to be honest. Um, And for me, I had this external tough exterior. Internally, I was a very different person. So when I was eight years old, um, I developed obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, which remained undiagnosed until I was 28. So for for 20 years, trying to outthink mental illness when I didn't know it was mental illness, didn't know the words for mental illness, didn't know what OCD was until I was 28. Um, you know, and then along, you know, through the journey, depression, anxiety comes on board as well, and you try to deal with that. And and growing up in an environment where you're not allowed to talk about things and 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 share your emotions and all that type of stuff, it's it's hard. Yeah. So, you know, get to my teens and start drinking a lot and trying to numb the pain, slow the mind down. But it wasn't really until I got help in, you know, 11 years ago now that I started to reflect on life and go, well, these are the key key things that kind of led me to a life living in, in, in the shadows or in silence and and suffering as well. And so to, to shed light on what OCD is for a lot of people, they, they misunderstand the condition um, or it's a disease and disorder um, it starts with an obsessive thought in your mind that it's like an intrusive thought, but it's so powerful that you can't let go of it. You keep ruminating on that thought until you perform a compulsion, a compulsion or a compulsive act, which is the C in OCD. Um, so for me, it was in the schoolyard. A student said to me, Simon, if you stop talking for more than a minute, you're going to lose your voice forever. And most people would brush that off. But me, I took that as, you know, that was going to happen and, And so I started humming to myself all day, every day, you know, for the next two years or so. I would, every minute or so, I'd periodically check my voice box was still working by doing a little hum, a very small hum, um, kind of like mm, mm, that type of thing. Um, And interestingly, nobody ever picked me up on it. So I reckon I did it pretty well in terms of keeping it silent and, 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 and internalized and, then you know it grow it grew from there and in, in when I was about 13 or so, mum and dad separated and we moved from Powerful Gardens where my dad lived and where we lived as a family into Salisbury North. And and I'm not sure if anyone's familiar with Salisbury North on the show, but it's it's famous probably for the wrong reasons. Um, if you think back to the Snowtown murders and the bodies in the barrel case, that's where they uncovered some of the bodies. Mm. And we happened to live around the corner from that household. And you know, it, it's a pocket. Well, the whole northern suburbs actually. There's pockets of of welfare. It's pockets of social housing, disadvantage, but also a lot of tradies, a lot of manufacturing, a lot of services style people that work in those kind of roles. Not so much like it's not a very wealthy area, um, and so crime was was something that I, I saw and and people getting beat up a lot, and particularly at my school and and stuff like that. I remember my first day of high school, someone, you know, got a broken nose and another girl got her head smashed against a brick wall. And I'm like, you're right. (laughs) What is going on here? How am I going to protect myself? And I think this is where my OCD really ramped up trying to protect me basically. And and for the next 15 or so years, or even to now, I'm like almost 40. My mind tells me that I'm always in danger. So I'm always risk assessing everything. And, and, you know, this presents at nighttime when I'm locking up the house. I'll be checking windows and doors and and gates and so forth. Um, yeah. Make it so that they're all locked so that people don't break in and and kill us or steal our stuff and and all this type of. Even though I don't even live on this in the northern suburbs of Adelaide anymore, I live on the sunny coast, I live in a very safe area actually. Um, but this has stuck with me ever since. And so, 
I would be compulsively checking all these things for hours and on end, you know, through my teens and, and, you know, it extends to my wallet and phone and keys. If I lost my wallet, for example, someone's got my identity, they've got my address. And if they've got my keys, they've got a means to get into my house, mm. got my phone, they, you know, there's every, we live our lives on our phones now. So all these things intertwine in an OCD mind that, you know, basically runs at a million miles an hour all day, every day. And so for a long time, as I said before, drinking was was my means to slow things down. Um, and, you know, even even really to today, like I still struggle with that a little bit. Um, I don't yeah. drink as much as I used to, um, but for a long part of my life, that's what I did. And, and I didn't really know it until more recently, until I've reflected back on life and going, okay, this is what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I just thought I was growing up as that Aussie, Aussie larrikin or the Aussie bloke drinks a lot, parties a lot, has fun. But I think I was just masking a lot of pain in, internally and, and and doing that for that reason. And so that's, a, I guess, a bit of a, a brushed over version of 30 years of my life. Um, but yeah, it all it all came to a head when I was 28. And, and my wife, my now wife said, Simon, you've got to go get some help for this. This is not this is not the you that I fell in love with. Um, you're, you're drinking too much. You're, you're being a bit of a dick. Um, and by that stage, I had lived so long in silence and suffering in that way. And I thought, you know what, she's right. I've got to go get help. So that's when I went off to the GP and, and started a recovery journey. And then fast forward until 2020, experienced burnout as well. So burnout's added to my long list of, or my growing list of mental illness. And it's from there that I discovered things like mindfulness and, and, and pivoted away from what I was doing in the public service as a career towards creating my own men's mental health business called Mindful Men as well. So from, from pain, um, I've, I've shifted that into my purpose of helping guys to open up about their mental illness just because I suffered for so long in silence. Yeah. I just don't want any other one else to do that as well. Mm. We've got a lot to unpack there. We can it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we, we do taking all my notes, but um, I'm really keen to unpack a few things because I think yeah. there's a lot of key lessons in there for people and also some inspiring lessons in there for people as well. And I want to go back to this, my first question, just so it all attaches to the end. At the start, when you're getting the humming, like how did you get that to stop? And how did you become aware that that was something that needed to be stopped or did you, that just become like unconsciously stop happening? It was, I couldn't stop it. You couldn't. So and and the thing with OCD is it, they call it a silent condition because from the from the day first day of first symptom, which is starting that humming process, to first treatment is something like the average is fifteen years. Mm. And so to get the treatment, you need to open up. And for me, it was twenty years, but it wasn't until even longer than that, twenty eight years or so, that I actually went to someone who specialises in OCD to start tackling some of these behaviours. So for the humming thing, it never, it just naturally died out. And I've seen this with a few of my things with OCD over the years is, is they just naturally, they come into my life and they're very intense for a long period of time. But then as time progresses, they kind of die out and something else might replace it. Um, I mean, I mean, doing the checking of the household stuff until this day, and, and that's been since I was 13. Um, nothing new has come into to that. That's pro- that's. I mean, that's pretty profound in itself. But the humming thing, yeah, it was two years, and it just naturally died out. It wasn't something that I consciously said I've got to stop doing this. Yeah. I think I just moved on to the next thing. Really, 
was did no one pick up of any of the OCD um, traits that you had when you were growing up at all? Like any teachers, anyone in your environment? No, nothing at all. So nothing at school. And, you know, it wasn't just a humming thing. There was a lot of counting and repetition in my head. So with an OCD brand, you do things in a certain order. And this is where I think OCD gets confused and trivialized a lot. People just think that if you have OCD, that you just like things to be in order. And it's not necessarily like that. It's so, for example, I would count in my head to five or 10. Like I'd have to do it in a certain types of numbers and attributed to that is a, is a behavior. So, for example, I was, I would, you know, grab my finger on my skin and, and I would write cursive words for some reason. I'm not sure why I was doing this. Mm. I'm not sure what the obsessive component of this was, but the compulsion was, you know, writing these cursive words. And if I messed up the word, I would have to start again. But then I'd also have to do it in five or 10, groups of five or 10, to kind of alleviate whatever distress was happening. So I think it might have been around anxiety as well. So, the, you know, I was anxious about something. So I was doing this kind of compulsion. Same with same with the um, the humming, actually. I had to do it in a certain way that was just right. And OCD, in the OCD world, just right comes up a lot. So that kind of leads into perfectionism is I had to make a sound in my in my head that sounded on on perfect pitch. If I, mm. you know, if you have a, a cough and, or a, a croaky throat and trying to talk, you know how you have that? It's not your normal voice. Yeah. In an OCD mind, like if, for the humming thing, if I had that, I would keep repeating the hum until I got to a point where the croak didn't appear. And so, yeah, I'd be constantly doing this in, in certain ways and numbers. And 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 so in those teenage, you know, well, in those early years, you know, before teenage, no one ever picked it up. I would do this, you know, quietly. And even when I was doing this at around 13 plus with the checking for the house and all that, like that was at nighttime when everyone else was asleep. So I lived with mum and my little brother and they never said anything. So I did that and I would do that for three, three four hours a night just yeah. pacing the house, going in and out of the house, um, all in the dark. You know, this is before iPhones had the had the lights on them. What's well, before iPhones? And so I'd do it in the dark and, and you know, it, it kept largely quiet. Like nobody knew it until probably I met my now wife and she started picking up on some of these things. But we didn't know it was OCD until it was diagnosed, you know, and we, we were together for a few years before I went and got the diagnosis. So... It wasn't until then I go, oh, that's what I do. I didn't really realize that. So, yeah, growing up, did you believe everyone else was having a similar experience to yourself, or did you know that your experience through life is somewhat of unique to yourself? Yeah, no, never didn't think anyone else was going through what I was going through, and that's what mental illness does to you. It thinks that you're the only person in the world who is dealing with this particular thing. And in and that's I think that's why they call OCD a silent condition or a silent disorder is because the obsessive thoughts can be quite extreme. I mean, mine are around safety and security. But I was reflecting on this with on another podcast yesterday, and with some of the guests that I've had on my show around OCD. And there's people that have themes around harming other people, around pedophilia around religion around ethical stuff and so to be able to verbalize those types of things is quite distressing and even for me with some of mine so some of mine sometimes brings up suicidal ideation and and for me to talk about that with gp or or my wife or or, or a um, counselor or therapist or whatever it's it's quite challenging and so for many we just 
bottle it up and just don't talk about it because what what happens if we do like as a dad now if i talk about some of the things like i worry like worry that you know the police might come because someone might say oh Simon's a danger to society but in the ocd mind and anxiety as well i mean ocd is, is kind of an anxiety condition there's like we have these thoughts and we don't believe them. We're not going to act on them. They're just intrusive thoughts that get stuck in a loop. And yeah. so the only way to, to release the anxiety from that is to, to perform the compulsive act. But what I found is that talking really does help. And, and when I have started opening up to GPs and therapists and so forth, I realize that I'm not alone mm. in the world, that they've heard these stories before, but internally I think I'm the only person and have for, you know, for three decades experiencing these kind of distressing thoughts that shows the importance of starting that conversation opening up and speaking to someone because <clears throat> when i first started opening up about my own struggles i started to realize i was able to see a different perspective and a lot of the time i just needed that ah that aha moment the light bulb moment for someone else that picks point something out that i was going through and thinking what if i looked at it that way what if i had this different perspective and how can I work towards and embodying that perspective? And there's so many light bulb moments that come to your mind when you first open up, but at the beginning, it's very hard to surrender. And I think especially for men as well, like, was it really hard for you to surrender or open up in the first point? And how did you overcome those thoughts or challenges that stop you from opening up? Yeah, absolutely. And so I remember a couple of years, one or two years before I, I did walk into the GP's office my wife, my now wife, or I just killed my wife because she is my wife. But yeah, she said to me, Simon, you've you, you got to go get help. Like this is, you're, you're killing me. You're killing our relationship. You're doing all these things. But I did what most guys would do. And I deflected back. I said, no, nah, it's not me. You, if you're worried, you need to go get help. And, mm -hmm. and yeah, maybe I'm drinking too much. So I'm just going to cut back for a little while and I'll go do a few runs around a block and try and do deal with it that way. And so I did that a number of times. And I think part of it was I didn't want to open up. I wasn't ready. But also part of it was I had this shame and stigmas associated with taking medication. Mm -hmm. And I thought if I could go to the GP or, or a psychologist or something, I'm going to be put on meds. And I didn't want to have meds every single day. Yeah. And the reason I had that thought was because I saw thing, people like my mum who would have a lot of medication and not necessarily for mental illness, but I just she just had it for all, a whole lot of physical issues. And I didn't want that life for me. But then two years later, and I'm still having these discussions with my wife and she's saying, well, Simon, you're, you're, I'm almost at the point where you've got to get out of the house. And I didn't want that at all. Um, I think that was the light bulb moment going, yeah, I need to go and get help. And, and yes, I did end up getting a script for medication and I've been on medication ever since. But what I've since learned is when I started opening up and A, take that weight of the world on my shoulders started taking things like meds and doing the homework with therapy, I realized that I actually need these things to feel more normal, if that's even a word, or to feel better version of myself. And, and since then, like now I'm a, I'm a big advocate for med medication because when I'm not on medication, I really do notice it and things go downhill pretty quickly. Um, but also when I'm not in therapy, things start to spiral out of control as well. So I need to check in with somebody probably every six months or so or to 12 months if I'm doing really well um, just to keep things on track and to almost kind of download the stuff that's built up in my brain ever since, you know, the last time I went into someone's office. So 
Mm, that's an important message too, because even when, because some people, when they go and see therapy or counselor or get support for mental health, they can get to a point where they feel like everything's good. Cool. I don't need to speak to anyone anymore. Then you're going to start slowly working backwards because all these thoughts and all these things that you're processing and emotions are going to bottle up in your mind. And eventually they're either going to come out in the way you don't want to express it, or you've got to force yourself to express it and surrender in a way that will benefit you. I think it's important even when you get to like a better spectrum of mental health or mental wellness, it's important to still speak to people and open it up. Like you said, I like how you touched on it. You still speak to someone every six or 12 months to make sure that you are regulating appropriately to make sure you're not unconsciously building things up. And it's really, I think that was an important message that you touched on there. Yeah, absolutely. But it's, it's been a long journey to get to that kind of stage. And, and I'm by all means, like, sometimes we call that maintenance, but I'm actually going in there again because I'm probably in acute periods. So mine go up and spiral up and down very quickly every, you know, every three to six months. Um, but it took, a, it's taken a long time to get used to therapy as well. Like for the first time I walked into a psych's office and I expected them to heal me and, and to fix me within three sessions. And I, and that was going to be it, but it, it didn't happen. And I went for my initial six sessions, my, my very first mental health care plan, which is what it used to be called. Um, yeah. Going into a psychologist's office and, you know, finding I've got these conditions in the first place being diagnosed, but then also I don't want to do thought journals. I don't want to do the homework and all that type of stuff. And so I kind of dropped out and then I thought, a few years later, I'd go see a psychiatrist, which is different to a psychologist. And that guy just was creepy as like, he was the token yeah, white middle-aged guy, psychiatrist. I just had the, the irks with. And so I lasted two sessions with him. I'm like, I can't go back to that guy. Don't feel comfortable opening up to him. Tried another psychologist, the same as the first psychologist. I'm like, oh, I'm just feel like I'm repeating the same stuff over and over and so what, when I reflect back on those those first three iterations of my therapy journey, which happened over a, a number of years, like two or three years, I don't think I was really ready to commit to therapy. I was ready to go in there and talk, but I wasn't ready to do the homework. Yeah. And so, it's, you know, fast forward another four or five years and, I, and I'm starting to find therapists that I really connect with and I'm, I'm more in tune on how to find the best therapist for me at the time. And now the ones that I walk into, I go in there and I know the importance of the homework. I know the, imp I know the theories behind it now as a social worker. Um, and I'm committed more to the homework aspect of it as well, which is really beneficial. And that's where you get the best growth. And so, yeah, now it's quite a normal thing for me. Just go in and go, yeah, all right, this is what's going on. Give me the tools or help me refine my tools that I've got. Um, and let's get into it. Like, I'm not going to mess around. It's, I don't want to waste anyone's time and my money as well. If I'm not here, I'm if I'm going to be here, I'm going to do the work. So mm, that's another important lesson, man, because when we first start opening up and talking to people, rather to psychologist or psychiatrist, counselor, because in today's age, we've got so much easy access to things that give us instant relief, rather alcohol. For me, I used to be a drug addict. So I used to resort to drugs. For some people, it could even be, Social media gives them that instant relief or it could be whatever it may be. Anything can give you that instant relief. And to actually go to a place and understand that, oh, this is not going to be sorted within the first or two sessions. And I've actually got to go away and do the work and be a challenging thing for people. But it's an important thing for people to understand before they even go in the first place, I reckon, because you don't want to set people up to fail. And I think if you go in there with the mindset, like, cool, I'm coming here twice. Everything's going to be sorted. I'll go home and I'll be the person I want to be. It's like, no. 
understand that you've got to implement some practices and it's going to take a bit of time and that's okay. And just start going, start opening up and then also find a structure or routine that fits for you that you can start implementing these things that are going to work and benefit you. Yeah, absolutely. And often like comparison culture is, is huge issue issue in the mental health space. And I've heard so many stories of people saying, oh yeah, I was on meds for a month and, and now I'm fine. Or I went and saw that psychologist or counselor or twice and I'm fine now. And then I look at my journey, I'm like, oh wow, mine's more of a roller coaster. And now as a therapist myself, the guys that I work with, like their stories go even longer than mine in some cases. And so we get caught up in that comparison culture. And I think what you touched on there is that it, you, it's your own journey. Like it will take as long as it takes, but just as long as you're committed to that growth process, um, that's where, you know, you can get real benefit. It's it's not a short-term fix. It's a long-term growth um, potential here. And, and so that's what I I see that now and I try to ignore, well, I do ignore everybody else's journey because it is my journey. And that's what I say with the guys that I work with. It's, it's your journey. We're going to be here as long as it need, as we need to be. Um, and then, yeah, we'll just take it one step at a time. It's really important to focus on that next step. Yeah, everyone's journey is unique because comparison is the theft of joy. So if you're constantly comparing yourself to other people, you're going to steal your own internal happiness and fulfillment. And for me, it took me about three years from the day where I was like, fuck, I surrendered and finally went, cool, I need to get help here to the point where I'm like, oh, I've actually got a hold of what I'm going for and I've got all the tools where I can start living a better life or more improved life at that time. It's like, cool, it could take three years for me. It could take five years for you. It could take six months for someone else. Like it's all unique to each individual. And it's like, just trust in the process behind why you're doing the things you're doing and trust in the people that are supporting you. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's so many different ways to to approach mental health as well. So like the first five or six therapists that I went and saw, they were only ever focusing on the depression, mm-hmm. really. That like that was the main focus. And but not the OCD. And OCD has been this huge, probably the bigger part of my life. And it wasn't until I actively sought out someone for my OCD. And and it's hard to find therapists that are uh, appropriately trained in OCD in Australia, particularly. And particularly on the sunny coast, like there's not many providers around, but I did find one and we did some, some different work. So it wasn't so much talk therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy. It was, it was more around trying to prevent the, the behaviors that are associated with OCD. So it actually comes under exposure response prevention, which is something that not many people do. Um, it is a form of exposure therapy and a form of cognitive behavioral therapy as well, but it, it is tailored towards things like OCD. And it's from there that I go, okay, I've never done this type of therapy before, but it is really working for the thing that we probably should have been treating since day one and not Mm -hmm. just focusing on the depression because the depression came about as a result of the OCD, but a whole bunch of other things around, you know, masculinity and loneliness and, you know, moving around a lot was a big thing and loneliness and, and stuff like that. And so that, I think that was secondary to what was underlying it, which was the OCD. Mm, and that makes so much sense. There's always something underlying to the surface level thing that we see. <clears throat> like even with uh, people who are addicted to drugs, it's like, cool, you want to focus on the addiction, but why are they addicted in the first place? What's the thing that's making them, them attached to the addiction? Like for yourself, it was alcohol. For myself, it was um, drugs. And for other people, whatever they are addicted to, it's like, what is the reason behind why you're addicted to this thing? And how can you implement and support the thing that's making you addicted to that and slowly replace it? Yeah, absolutely. And and that's what I love about things like acceptance and commitment therapies, because we dive 
into the meanings that we we create in ourselves and our personal values and and all that type of stuff and 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 what are our goals how we're showing up in life and accepting how we're showing up but also recognizing that we've got room to grow as well and so that's why that particular therapy has become part of my central to my modality and in, in in what i do with mindful men is because we can look a bit deeper and and not just look at that surface level stuff and and as a social worker i love diving into the context of guys and and the guys that i help and, and say okay well this is what's going on now, but what's all the surrounding things uh, that have happened? What's happening at work? What's happening at home? Yeah. What's happening with your kids or, you know, other relationships? What's, why are you drinking or taking too many drugs or what happened in childhood? Cause what happened in childhood really does define how you're showing up as a guy. Now, where did you come from? Are you from the Northern suburbs in Adelaide or you're from, you know, rural australia or you're from an island like that all impacts how you look and perceive the world but also how you interact with the world as well so it's really important to dive into that stuff too mm, context is important like you just said getting the full picture the full understanding of something that's like cool now we know which angle to come at this at because yeah. if you focus just on one point it's like all these other areas not getting focused on and you might not see growth and you might not see improvement. You may see little bits, but they might self-sabotage back to old behavior. And it's like, why is that? It's like, because we haven't got the full context of what's happening. And that's an important point. Yeah, absolutely. And so when guys come into my therapy, I'll ask a million questions about their life. And they're like, so why are we talking about this? I came in here because I was grumpy with my wife or something like that. I'm like, well, let's go, let's go into that. Cause that's important, but also let's yeah let's look at everything holistically let's look at the full picture because it, it only gives it not only gives us like a different angle to look at things but also gives us multiple angles to look at things as well because i think mm. you know the the everything you know interfaces with each other so what's happening at work does interface with what's happening at home and then what's happening with your relationships what's happening with your mates how you're feeling about yourself even things like politics finances religion all these big things as well they have an impact on how we're showing up on our day-to-day -day as well. Sometimes we don't know it. And I think when we start consciously looking at this type of stuff through a mindfulness approach, you know, in particularly, we can start consciously living and start, you know, turning off the autopilot that often many of us have, you know, put on and had on for, for many years. Because mm. that's it. Like 90% of our brain is run by the subconscious. So all the experience we've experienced and all the values that we have and all the beliefs that we have are just on autopilot and running us through life. Then the times we are consciously thinking and not using that time to actually do things that are going to benefit us. So using that time when we are conscious to then implement it to the subconscious so it can be autopilot for things that are better. Like for an example, at the moment, uh, my subconscious autopilot thing is to go to the gym and exercise. But before it was the complete opposite. It was destructive behavioral habits. But now it's something that is benefiting me. And it's just rewiring those um, subconscious beliefs so you can start doing things that benefit you. Yeah, absolutely. And it takes practice. Yeah, it does. And and therapists can help, but it's not just therapists. It's it's your mates, it's your partner, it's coaches. There's so many different diverse ranges. There's podcasts. Like if you had a podcast and part of my healing from recovery, I was I was listening to a lot of growth podcasts as well and realizing that I can change the internal discourse that's going on, which has also been really useful for the OCD because that is an internal battle. So if you can start challenging those things with some growth mindset or, or, or positive reinforcement affirmations, you know, there's a lot of potential to, to improve our lives just from self-belief really and, and flipping the discourse internally. Yeah. Getting around those more powerful or helpful environments as well. 
because one of the times I first realized this is when I first discovered Tony Robbins and every single night, like for probably about 12 weeks straight, I was just watching Tony Robbins videos on YouTube. And then at the time I was running like events and stuff. So I was doing a lot of public speaking and when I would get up and public speak, I was found myself doing the same body movements as Tony. I was like not consciously doing it, but just on autopilot doing it, like mirroring what he did. Obviously not at that level, but I was just like, holy shit, like this is like this is powerful. Like, why is this happening? Why am I embodying this without me even consciously doing it? Like, I never even try to practice it. It's just because I watched it every single night. And like that just shows the the power of your environment. So you put yourself in like externally, yeah, like out in the real world, but even also on social media as well. Like, what are you scrolling on? What are you watching? Because all of that is identifying beliefs into you, it's identifying um force. So you have to process and embodying, and it's like it makes it really interesting to understand of what we are consuming on a day-to-day basis and the impacts that can have on us. Yeah, absolutely. And I often reflect on, on my youth here and, you know, I grew up and we tried to have a heavy metal band in high school. I loved you know, listening to like Metallica and Korn and, and Sepultura, System of a Down, all these big bands. And, but I also love things like Eminem and, and D12 and all that type of stuff. I love like dark and, you know, thumping music and stuff like that. But then at the height of my teens and into my early 20s, something internally said to me, Simon, I'm just filling my brain with so much more anxiety through the music I'm listening to. So I completely switched it and started listening to more folk music and, and found Jack Johnson. Mm. And I think it was his his video clip where for Taylor where he's sitting under the tree and and I think Ben Stiller's doing some stupid stuff on it. But it just felt so much more zen. And so for the next 10 years that would be the music that I would go to, to try and fill my mind with calming stuff. Mm. And I still love heavy metal. I still love like hip hop and, and rap and all that type of stuff, but just to calm my mind, yeah. just with the power of music and, and even Tony Robbins stuff as well. Well, the last few years, I've been trying to to consume more of that style content rather than the, the news and, and all that type of stuff as well, um, yeah. which is just so negative. Sorry, my, dog, my dog's just, <laughs> I'm just going to put her out. She's just, um, oh, all good. Sorry about that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> my dog, my dog is just, she's old and she, like, if you, yeah, you, if you kick her out, she'll scratch, but if you keep her in, she'll just scratch and scratch and scratch as well. So <laughs> as same with my dogs, I've got two like 50 kilo mastiffs. And every single time I let them in the house when I'm doing the podcast, they wrestle at the door that I'm in. And you just hear the door just banging. And I've had guests on the podcast and they're like, what's that banging noise? Is there a fight in your house? I'm like, that's nah, just the dogs. <laughs> I think it's a good analogy. And, and and the kids as well, it's a good analogy for a mental health discussion because there could be things that are distracting you and you keep focusing on it and you can't focus. You've got to pull yourself back and go, you know what? It's just a dog or it's just the kids. It's okay. Yeah. But again, the perfectionism comes into it there. It's just like... Oh, you you know we've got to have things quiet. We've got to we've got to be focused. We've got to do this. But life's not like that. Exactly. So I often have the dog in here for that very reason to remind me that there is beauty and imperfection as well. Yeah. So you just got to learn how to adapt to situations, yeah. and that's it. Like if you try to be perfectionist to everything, you're gonna self destruct yourself internally over time. Yeah. Well, absolutely. That's a really important because as a social worker, we have these practice frameworks and central to mine is this concept called wabi-sabi. So it's the beauty and imperfection. Mm-hmm. And that's really important for me because as in someone we're living with OCD, I mentioned earlier that things have to be just right. It's 
perfectionism has driven so much of my life that it's became to a point where I burnt out in 2020 and I couldn't function. I had to take five months off of work. Mm-hmm. And, and even since then, there was a lot of therapy involved in, in coming back to that point and, and rehabilitation. And, and so now I'm consciously trying to, to not be perfect. Yeah. So it could be the dog in here, or it could be the, the kids banging on the door or in the work that I do is recognizing with the guys is that I'm not the perfect therapist. I'm not the perfect bloke. I still struggle with things like alcohol. Um, I still struggle with my emotions and, and all that type of stuff, but I'm acknowledging that I'm recognizing that and I'm moving forward with purpose and, and trying to, to work through it actively as opposed to just letting it sit by the side and for another 10, 20 years, like you previously did. Yeah. And we've, with burnout, man, <clears throat> was there any early warning signs that you ignored intentionally or was it something that just hit you in one moment? Um, burnout, for anyone who hasn't heard of what burnout, burnout is like cr- severe chronic stress and it, it's actually a slow burn. So we think of, of burnout as going, and I, when I first heard the word burnout, it was, I, I had my, in my old career was high key performance indicators. So I worked in the public service in the disability space and, and we had to, it was like a conveyor belt of work. You do one job, press approve, the next one would come, the next one would come and you'd have to do that repetitively for years. I did that for four years. And I think burnout was a combination of that plus 30 years living with mental illness. Plus at the time I was studying part-time as a social worker. So as a master's degree which is not easy um, or study in, in general is not easy. And then we had two kids and COVID. And so we had lockdowns as well. So, you know, this room is, is my spare room at home, but we had a whole world was here for, yeah. for those lockdowns as well. And, and, and that's when I burnt out. It was, it was, I just got to a point and it, and it happened at work, but I think context is important. And again, it's, it's, it's more than a work thing. And we often think it's just work is, and, but it was, it was everything. It was all of those things that have been going for a long time. And it's like I had five candles burning at both ends. Mm-hmm. And eventually I just had to drop them all because I couldn't do anything. Um, so there was a whole bunch of things. But what I did know, increasingly cynical and increasingly just not, I couldn't care anymore. Like, and, and I cared a lot because, you know, I worked in, in, supporting people with disability but also who are in the child safety system as well and so i could see internally how our systems and structures weren't really working in that space and so i was trying to advocate for change internally to this massive public service organization and nobody was listening and i was doing this for years and then but i also realized i was doing that in other jobs as well so before that i was in you know border force and home affairs and i was trying to do the similar in there and and what I'd realized is over the majority of my career, I was trying to do better, be perfect, be perfect, be perfect. And that kept coming up as well. And, and I kept masking it with alcohol and I kept masking it with, you know, just trying to switch off at the end of the night. But I was one of those guys that Sunday would come around and you start getting those Sunday dreads. I don't want to go to work tomorrow. I don't want to do this tomorrow. And then you get through the week and you go, okay, I got through the week. How can I get through the next week and the next week? And I was doing this for years but the last four years, really, it just all came to a head. And, you know, I was getting short with people. And I think one of the key moments for me was when I was in a, in a, in a session with another person, with a client, they would come in the door and, I, and for the next two to three hours, my focus was fully on them. 
and I, I remember 15 minutes into conversations I had no idea how I even got to that point mm. I forgot people's names I was forgetting my train of thought and my workloads I could no longer approve them in the time that I needed to they were dragging out and dragging out and dragging out and so it wasn't until I I just basically crumbled and got to a point where I was having a chat with my manager and she was asking about workloads and I just started crying and I just said look I think I'm and I didn't even know where this word come from. I didn't, I didn't know what burnout really was. And I said, I think I'm burnt out. And it was lucky that I, I, my GP had experienced burnout in their life as well. So when I went to him and I was explaining what was going on, it's like, Simon, you're burnt out. Look, this is what burnout is, chronic prolonged stress. Mm. And the tools that you've been using haven't been working. You've been taking on too much. You need to find, rediscover joy, rediscover calmness, rediscover clarity. Um, and it's going to start with five months off of work. Mm. Yeah, well, so what do you do now to make sure that you don't experience burnout again or repeat anything that will make you experience that again? Yeah, it's a, that's been a journey. So it's 2020 that happened and I initially went to therapy and initially introduced to things like mindfulness which I love now, but at the time I'm like, this sounds just really wanky. Like just do gratitude journaling and what are your three things you're grateful for? For so many people that doesn't work. And for me, it didn't work. I did it for a week or so. And yeah, I'm just like, this just sounds boring. It's just not lighting me up. And what was happening was my three things that I was grateful for, I just kept regurgitating every single day. And so it just felt like I wasn't doing anything. So it was like family, house. I've got a job, you know, even though my job caused burnout partly, um, but I've got a, a good job with good good money and I'm paying a good mortgage. And so I kind of parked that for a little while. But then when I recovered from that and went back to work, I went to a different psychologist and we we changed how I looked at gratitude and, and mindfulness. And instead of looking at the big three things, we we're looking at the everyday things that I've been skipping because I've been on autopilot. So like my cup of coffee, I love coffee mm. and actually just tuning into why that makes me feel good. Or if I've had a good, you know, a good half an hour with the kids, I haven't been screaming at each other and we just had a nice half an hour of serenity or something like that. These are the things that you would kind of overlook because we think we have to look at the big three things. And so that started to keep me in check, but also I, I, I started doing this thing and I, I now call it mindfulness on the move in my own therapy practice but I started doing this thing was walking around the local the local park and just tuning into what was happening around me with my five senses. So I'd, I'd brush my hand across a tree to feel the tree, to feel something that was alive. Or I'd look at the clouds and really tune into the color of the clouds and how they're moving on the wind or how the wind touches my skin. And it sounds all really wanky and, and, and hippie and all this type of stuff, but it really did work because again, and it's probably come out in this podcast, my mind races so quickly, I could be bouncing between 500 different thoughts at one thing. And I could be talking about two different things at the same time. So they often come out jumbled. And people often say to me, Simon, are we at the end of the story? Or are we at the start of the story? And often I'm at the end. But internally, I'm, I'm, my mouth is like at the start and, and and I get confused as well. And and so by doing this mindfulness on the move, I was able to to slow things down and ground myself in the moment, be where my feet are. And that's, and that's my key thing that I say in therapy with my guys is be where your feet are. Because if we think too much in the past, these are things like depression, regret, all this type of stuff. If we think too much in the future, a lot of anxiety comes up for us. We're like, it's all the unknowns. What's going to happen next? What should I do? How should this happen? 
and we try to plan for the worst case scenario. But if we can be where our feet are, our feet only know one place to be and it's right here in the moment. And so by doing, you know, going for a walk and doing that, using nature is, is fantastic for that, whether it's walking, gardening, swimming, anything outside, but even internally here as well, like part of my recovery from burnout was sitting on my Mac and there's a program called Garage Band and I've never been a DJ, but I always thought, oh, it'd be cool to be kind of like a DJ one day. And, and, and I was just looping music together that was already on Garage Band. And it was just, so it was a creative process that was giving me joy, but also letting me focus on one thing. Mm. And so this mindfulness kind of really tuning into that aspect of mindfulness and then, yeah, shifting the way I did gratitude, that's kept me on track for, you know, the last couple of years, but then also back to regular therapy as well, you know, checking in with my therapist, um, checking in, tuning in, like if I'm feeling rubbish, the I'll check in with my self-care. So am I drinking too much? Am I sleeping enough? Am I eating too much shit? Um, am I exercising enough? All the, all the things that, you know, sound very simple, but if they're not in check for me, that's when I spiral out of control. Yeah. And so that's really important for me just to tune into and it helps with yeah therapist, therapy, but also have, you know, as a social worker, I have a supervisor as well. So I really, you know, blessed to have them in my life. And, and, and I've had business coaches as well where I can just check in with them from a either a theoretical perspective or a therapy perspective or a business perspective. Cause you know, I'm started this business in August last year and, and trying to navigate business life. I've never had a business before, so that's really scary, but also really exciting at the same time. So have, drawing on people and their expertise also helps me stay on track and, and avoid things like burnout as well. It helps me stop looking at all the shiny bright lights and just focus on the one thing that I actually need to get done. Yeah. And especially with mindfulness as well, man, the, the presence, that's such an important point there because when I first discovered the presence and seeking the present moment each day, it was a big game changer for me before I got into breath work and meditation. Meditation was something I did probably a couple of times and I got pissed off every time I did it because mm. it wasn't working. <laughs> yeah. And then with breath work as well, before I started doing breath work, I had this image of it that you had to be a certain demographic of person to do breath work. I was like, I'm not one of those people. So I'm not going to do breath work. Like I'm not going to sit in the circle and breathe. <laughs> but then I went to like an event and there was like a hundred people down at the beach. It was called Cool to Be Conscious. And this was like in 2020. So three years ago, well, three years ago. And I remember going to this place that I was, went with no intentions. I was like, I'll give it a go, see how I feel. And then after I remember feeling so calm and present and so in touch with the moment and nature and everything around me. And I was like, what is this? Like what is happening? Because up until that point, I used to struggle with negative intrusive thoughts. So I'll be driving and the worst thoughts possible come into my head. I'm like, shit, what's all that about? And, try, and then it was all that battle trying to get those thoughts out of my head. And I used to battle that a lot. Then once I started practicing breath work daily and meditation, like that has gone out of my life probably 85 to 90% now. But it is a practice. It has to be done daily. But the misconception about mindfulness, we can, a lot of people can have, especially men. But then once you practice it and you see the benefits and reward from it, you're like, holy shit, this is like, <laughs> it's like, it's like a superpower in a way. And I love that you named your business and your work, the uh, mindful men, because it's dropping the stigma on what mindfulness is, but it's also an important piece of the work that you do, because I saw with the work that you do, a lot of it's like, you don't want to sit in an office and talk about what you're going through. Let's go for a walk. Let's go for a coffee. Let's play basketball. And I think that's so cool because you're connecting people to the present moment, but also being able to get people to open up and support them for the challenges they're going through. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I'm I'm glad you brought up breath work. So I had a similar and, and the same with meditation. I had a similar thing. So before I started the business, I was trying to figure out how to transition from my public service career. You know, I'd graduated the social work and then how do I transition to business? And I couldn't do it because there was too many conflicts of interest with work. And I went into a probably one of my darkest depressive states since my teens to the point where I was getting suicidal ideation. And I thought, you know, I was in therapy, I was doing the meds and I'm like, I've got to throw something else at it. It's just not working. So I, I found a breath work here on, on the coast and I was the same. I was like, this sounds really hippie. Like it's not me at all. And the first time I went to it, I went into flight mode. So I was laying on my back and there was 20 people there all in rows and I was at the back and we started the breath work and I thought, okay, it's going to be a quiet thing. It's going to be calming. No, it was like people would, had just finished a marathon and we're all just gasping for air, really loud and intense. And I went into flight mode and I just felt like running away, but I kept, I stayed there, but I was really reserved. I didn't really fully commit to the process. And so I was wondering, should I go back and do it again? And the next time I did, and I just, let go of some of that I don't know if it's stigma or or whatever it was I just let go I I kind of just released you know I gave myself to the process and for the next week after that like I had a bit of a a release I had a bit a few tears I wasn't as like you know screaming out like other people in the session and but I had this this for a week I just felt like I was walking on air and it just felt so good like it and they say it's you know breath work helps get down to the cellular level of releasing tension and trauma or stress or whatever. And it, and it was really cool. Um, and, and since then I haven't done so much more breath work, but I've been keen to get back into it. It's just business has taken over, but meditation was the same. And so like I, I was, when I was first introduced to mindfulness, I was said, Oh, you know, listen to these meditative processes. But when I was doing it, my mind would race so much. I felt like I was failing and it wasn't perfect. And so I gave up, but then what I've since come to realize is that's just part of the process of mindfulness is also recognizing that your mind will go in different directions and it will try to take your way. And so just recognizing that, but coming back to your breath or, or being where your feet are is really useful. But then I love mindfulness because it's also around the, the value stuff. It's tuning into how we're showing up. It's our context. And for guys, I love taking, and I call it mindfulness on the move. We take it, as you said, we take it out of the clinic because A, I didn't want to sit in a clinic six hours, you know, six sessions a day as a therapist because that would just drain me. And B, I'd love being outdoors. So why not play basketball or go down to a cafe, grab a coffee and go for a walk? Or I spend a lot of my time on Alex Alex Beach or Maruchador Beach walking up and down with guys. Mm. And it just looks like two blokes walking along the beach, but we're actually doing a therapy session. And the guys, they really love it. There's other kids, you know, I've worked with some kids or teens who are struggling with a lot of anxiety. So we go for a, just, we just go for a drive. So there's no one around. They just looks like a car's driving past, but we're talking about stuff and, and listening to music at the same time. It's really diverse in how we approach it or I approach it with the guys. And, I, and it comes from also being the person who sat on the other side of a therapist. I actually don't mind going there and divulging it all my deep and meaningfuls with a therapist. I actually find it therapeutic. It's also exhausting as well. But at the same time, as a therapist, like, yeah, sitting in there six six sessions a day, listening to all these, you know, big stories, like if we can just come outside, it makes me feel better, makes me feel more present. But it also helps the guys open up as well because I really struggle to sit there eye to eye and, and talk to you. 
Um, whereas it's a bit easier if we're walking side by side and we're looking at the same, you know, beach or or trees or we're looking at the same coffee, you know, cafe menu or something like that. It really does break down the stigma associated with with therapy in the in the first place. And it also knocks down those walls that because if you start going to therapy, you only do it in the room every single time. It can kind of feel like you can only open up in that spot. Mm. But if you do along the beach down the road, you might start doing that with a friend. You might start doing that with a loved one or a family member just because it becomes a casual conversation, but also it's impactful as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and it also connects guys, you know, with community. Hmm. And I say guys because I only, only I predominantly work with guys. But if there is a girl listening out there who wants to, to work with me, that's fine as well. Just give me a call. But, you know, often in the mental health space, and then a lot of guys as well, they might not be struggling with mental health issues, but more things around loneliness yeah. and stuff like that. So like, as I said, like I've moved so many times and even though I live on the Sunshine Coast, I still feel very lonely because I don't have a huge network of guys. In fact, I have zero network of guys. My my connections are either family or their work, they're through work. And so often I feel lonely and I'm glad you've got the dad's community top on at the moment because I'm part of the dad's community as well from the Sunshine Coast, um, which in itself makes it hard because all the events are in North Brisbane. Yeah. So with a family, getting down there on a Friday night for the barbie is really hard, but it's something I want to do and I will get there eventually. So Stephen, if you are listening, I'll be there soon, mate. <laughs> <laughs> but like loneliness is a huge thing. And so taking guys out of a clinic where it's just one-on-one and that's it. But like going to the beach or a cafe, there's other people around. So you can kind of like, you, know, you can connect with them without even talking to them or, or maybe it's just a high as you walk past them on the beach or at the park, or it's maybe it's not even that it's just being around other people helps us feel less lonely in the world, more connected. And then that can improve our mental health as well. Mm, that's so important i did an episode with a neuroscientist in the last episode and he was touching on <clears throat> how important that is especially for people struggling with depression being connected to a community and positive experiences because for thousands or basically every generation before us besides our generation now was a part of a community because like this generation now is the first one where more isolation is happening yes COVID, but also social media and working from home and things like that and that's why mental health um or mental illness is rising at the moment, but getting people out in the community because unconsciously they're still connecting with people, like you said, and it's bringing all those good neurotransmitters that are flowing in their brain and helping them connect, which is going to benefit their mental health as well. So it's like an added layer of support to the work that you're doing. And I think it's super important to connect people to a community. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'm glad you raised that because I often think about like traditional villages, like it takes a, a village to raise a child and like growing up in the day, like, if if it was if I was born maybe a decade earlier, maybe I would have stayed in the northern suburbs of Adelaide. And in fact, as growing up, I I had thought to myself, oh yeah, I'm never going to leave South Australia. I love going to the footy. I love going to the soccer. I love you know, we have nice warm summers, even though they're absolutely putridly hot actually. Um, but I liked that. But then as I moved around, I'm like, oh, there's greener pastures. And then I got caught up in the greener pastures cycle as well. I was like, oh, what's over the other hill? What's it like in Tassie? What's it like in Canberra? What's it like in, in Queensland? And the same goes for like, you know, guys that do fly and fly out. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're not really connected in with their community because they're often there in living two lives simultaneously. And so this is a real thing. And, and I think it's it's come about because A, it's easier for us to move. 
like across the world, you know, it's easy for us now these days to pick up and just move across the world. Whereas in previous generations, it wasn't easy. Yeah. It wasn't even easy just to, to, to move a couple of suburbs away, let alone interstate or overseas. But now we're kind of chasing the work or the work, the work moves as well. It moves offshore. Like I've, you know, I know people that have, have had to move overseas because their work has left mm-hmm. Australia to, to go overseas and to keep their jobs they have to move with it or like my brother he's in the air force so he he's been on deployed in so many different countries just because that's where the work is and 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 so many guys are like this and so yeah the, the importance of connecting with the community it does bring down those social isolation barriers um but also helps to re create new villages for us as well and it's really hard because you know every time you move and you're trying to crack into a new community. Some of those people have been established for decades. Yeah. And so finding, you know, finding your way in and, and weaseling your way in, it, it's very hard. It's harder as you get, as you're an adult, because you're, you're more in tune with who you want to hang out with and your energy and your time and your money and all that type of stuff. Whereas a kid, I always look at my kids and, and go, oh, it's so easy for you just to go make a new friend. <laughs> I wish yeah. I was a bit more like that. And I used to be like that, but you know, it's a work in progress, but it's something that through taking the therapy outside, we can start to break down some of that as well. Yeah, it's a very good, um, it's a good point that you made there because just seeking environments and communities that you can attach yourself to and just seeking them constantly. Like you said, it can be scary beginning with because some of those communities have already been established. I'm not talking about like moving across to the other side of the world. That's me so more so like a community up in Stanley Coast that does like a group every week or one and down in Brisbane and seeking those every week. And it's just attaching yourself to like-minded people and surround mm. yourself with people that you feel comfortable with, but then also in a sense, help you be a good and a better version of yourself as well. Yeah, that's really important is, and I often say to this to the guys that I work with is if you're in a, in a situation where you're not you know, happy and, and you you surround yourself with you know, toxic people as well. Like there's that saying, like what you're the, the sum of the, or you're the average of the five people you hang around the most or something like that. And, mm-hmm. and it's the same and, and it can be hard if those are your, your family members, yeah. but also by redefining your circle, by tuning in with people that align more with how you're showing up today or how you want to show up tomorrow that's where the growth comes as well because you're changing the stuff that you're consuming. It's like social media and the news and all that. You're just changing the stuff that's going into your mind and into your, into your heart. And then eventually you'll start to get that growth mindset and, you know, and, and move past those toxic relationships that maybe have been holding you back for a, for a while as well. A great example is that Tony Robbins story I told earlier. Like I started mm. to consume that content and I started modeling the content that I was watching I was like, oh shit, that's what made me aware of like why I need to be like, especially at nighttime, like why I need to be concerned of what I'm consuming because I'm going to embody that. And like, just before we go to bed, we're in the theta brainwave state and we can retain information up to 300% more when we're in the theta brainwave state. And it's like, what content am I consuming at that time? And how is that showing up in my life? So when you flip that and start using it for things that will benefit you or that will help you analyze your own situation and get a different perspective, you'll start to see a lot of growth and changes happening in your life by implementing that too. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember back in COVID, we were watching the daily press conferences from the Premier yeah. and the Prime Minister. And, and after a while, we got to a point where we just had to turn the TV off. And we stopped and, and yes, it was important for us to know which restrictions we were this week and all that type of stuff. But it got to a point where we just 
we just couldn't consume it. So we had to consciously turn it off and, and turn on more fun things and, and get outside more as well. And it was, that was a, I think a real key element there because the more and more we consume, the more and more we just were in despair and, and struggling as well, just in lockdowns and so many stories like that across the world. And also, you know, hearing a lot of that from Victoria with the longer lockdowns and we had here. Um, but yeah, this is a global thing as well. So yeah, I mean, I love Tony Robbins as well. And, and um, anytime I can consume some of his content or like-minded content um, from anybody, um, yeah, it just makes me feel better too. Yeah, because there's a study done on environment as well by um, neuroscientists and um, people that worked in biology to see how it affected the body, not just the mind and how we um, program what our environment is. And there's a study done that within a 20-foot radius, you like so let's just say you group of 10 they did a study of group of 10 people within a 20 foot radius after x amount of hours everyone in that room's blood pressure matched everyone's heart rate became the same beat people's dna started to match each other as well and started to connect and that shows like on an actual like a scientific level like how crazy it is <laughs> the environment is around you as well and to think of how much that is programming your mind as well so yeah i just wanted to double down on the whole environment um part of what we're talking about here because yeah it's super important for people listening and it's also a super important point for me too yeah absolutely and that's why you know the, the consumption aspect as well when i go to bed i try to read before i go to bed as opposed to scrolling i, I struggle with it <laughs> but the, if, I, if i'm reading something like a self-help book or or, or or a new social work book or something even just a fiction book that just makes me feel good i go to bed feeling less stressed as well and wake up feeling less stressed whereas if i'm going to bed watching the news or or you know reading up on the, the comments on social media on certain posts and all that and getting absorbed in that it really just sets you it sets you up for failure or, or for struggle mm. as well um like the, the example there was a tiktok I've, I've got a tiktok channel and and i was i commented on someone's mental health post was one of the a politician and someone else had commented and now started having a go at, go at me and I just felt terrible for the rest of the day. Mm. I didn't engage in the conversation any further than that, but it just felt terrible. So I've switched that off for a while and just focus on positive things like my books or or even just positive affirmations. Then I I was able to flip that way that I felt physically and mentally as well and and finish off the day on a better note than I started as well. Mm. especially with comments online like you're always going to have someone that's not going to agree with what you say and it's just being able to find ways to detach from those comments so you're not emotionally triggered by them because when i first started my page like five years ago if i ever got a negative comment like i used to think should i delete my post should i like you know just mm. all these forces have run from my head but now i see it and i just think cool like that's that person's perspective and they're entitled to it it is what it is and <laughs> just try and move on with it but that does take time as well to be able to have that acceptance piece to it yeah absolutely and not react We're and not that's reacting. something for guys as well like often we we look at things like toxic masculinity culture and and alpha males and 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 people that have to have us have to do certain things like i saw a post recently in a facebook group and it talked around you know kids getting bullied and stuff like that at school and and some people are like, oh, like, you know, we'd, we'd tell the teacher and let the teachers deal with that because it's, there's processes in place in schools to deal with that. And I saw some comments from some dads and they're like, nah, I'm just going to go in there and, and throw my weight around. I'm just like, really? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yes, we've got to protect our kids and, and, and our families and our loved ones and all that type of stuff. But we also have to, I guess, 
do it in a way that's not going to cause more harm as well. Fight fire with fire. Yeah, that's right. And we've got to we've got to change. And particularly, guys, we've got to take that moment, pause, and go. Okay, I'm about to see red. Is there an is there an amber that I can go to, and and then is there a green I can go to? And it's hard. I get it's hard. Like it's how we've been socially conditioned. Is that that social construction of masculinity is to be tough, is to be a protector, is to be alpha male but many of us aren't that we're actually yeah. very soft we're very in tune with things but often we're wearing a mask and pretending to be otherwise and so if we can just stop and pause as you said pause reflect even for a moment we can we can change what's potentially going to be a disaster into a positive into a growth thing and you know and and i often get asked around things like family and domestic violence right so the, the statistics for that guys are overwhelmingly the perpetrators of family and domestic violence and i think it's because their threshold for pausing and reflecting and not going into automatic protective you know survival mode is very small because they've been socially conditioned otherwise yeah you no know? and some for some guys that's just inter- intergenerational trauma that's or it's you know years on substance abuse or it's just that that concept around guys can't talk and they shouldn't yeah. talk so they just bottle it up and then it explodes like a volcano um but by consuming more stuff we're going into that growth mindset tony robbins type you know growth stuff breath work therapy just talking with your mates creating communities all the things that we've been talking about it can help break down a lot of those things and show guys that there are alternative ways than going into my kid's school and beating up a four-year-old or six-year-old or, or yeah. you know, or whatever. By engaging the school, maybe the school aren't aware of it, for example, mm. and say, hey, this is what's going on. I don't like it. It's hurting my kid. But maybe that other kid, he's struggling as well or she's struggling as well. Maybe there's something going on in their life. What is the context? Let's explore that. Context, that's important. <laughs> yeah. I've got I've got one more question for you, man, on the back of that. Yeah. What helped you become more responsive than reactive? Because for myself, one thing I one learning I delved myself into was Eckhart Tolle. He's like a spiritual teacher. And I learned from him to when I meditate to sit back and watch my thoughts like a movie and like mm-hmm. analyze them. So learn how to detach from thoughts so you can be less um, reactive and be more responsive. So you can actually analyze your thought processes and then get a different perspective and then implement something behind that. What was it for you? How did you become more responsive than reactive? It's a combination of a few things. I think it, it started with just opening up in the first place, but it's not something I tuned into until I, I actually, I'm fortunate I went into social work because social work gave me the the tools for critical self-reflection and we do in social work that's what we do a lot of is critical self-reflection and we use supervision to do that as well so looking at the world through different lenses and going okay this is why you know eastern culture is different to western culture and how they perceive things so that was useful but also through my own therapy journey and, and talking as well as just getting these things off my chest because once I started to verbalize things or write things down, I could see the words for what they actually are that were floating in my head at a million miles an hour. And it felt like I was no longer looking at a 500 tabs open of the computer in my mind. I can actually just bring one out and make it reality and go, okay, this is just old garbage. You know, I don't, I don't believe any of this stuff. It's just stuff that my mind is trying to pick together so it's a combination of the therapy, the social work. Um, becoming a dad was a huge one, actually. Mm-hmm. And 
just trying to see the world through my kids' eyes. Like I've got a six-year-old and a three-year-old. And so they do things at a different pace that is like slower. It's more authentic. It's genuine. They're not worried about tomorrow. They're only, they're, 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 they're perfect examples of being where your feet are because they're just in the moment playing or screaming. Like we've had a few screaming fights this morning, but you know, the two kids go off at each other, but, but they're in the moment. They're not worried about finances or house stuff or work or all these political things, religion things that are happening around the world. They're just worried about what's happening in front of them. And so becoming a dad, starting to recognize what's going on and they're recognizing that dad, maybe I am drinking too much. If it's a Wednesday night and I'm having a beer, I'm like, is that really what I want to be doing? Do I want my kids to grow up thinking, oh, dad just drinks a lot of beer? No, I don't want that. And so I've consciously been trying to pull back on that. And the older I get and the, the older my kids get, I'm very mindful, I guess, of, you know, how I'm showing up for them. That's beautiful, brother. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. And um, do you have any final words you'd like to share for our audience today? And also how can people connect with yourself and the work that you do and reach out? Yeah. We've been talking a bit about Tony Robbins. I'm going to talk, share my favorite Tony Robbins quote. It's it's, and it was introduced to me during my social work through another, another student. And it was something like the along the lines of change happens when the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change. Yeah. And, and so for anyone listening, guy or girl, doesn't matter what gender you are or anything like that, is if you're starting to recognize that, yeah, how I'm showing up is not how I want to be. And, and I know I can be better and stuff like that. Just start by talking to someone, talk to your friend, family, um, your GP, or that's where I started with my GP. And then when you go to therapy, there's, there's so many different options. And, and therapy is actually a good thing. Like I often reflect on, how many times as young guys, for example, would we spend, I don't know, 500 bucks on a night out with the blokes? Yeah. You know, drinking, gambling, food, maybe a hotel, taxis, all the stuff. And it gives us short-term release. It gives us six or seven hours of relief. Wake up the next morning. We're back into the midst of what's going on internally. You spend that, that, that gives you two to three therapy sessions, that same amount, which starts benefit, giving you long-term relief. And so start, I think it's starting to look at therapy as not so much of an impost, a financial impost particularly, but actually a, an investment into our well-being moving into the future. And, and so there's so many different things. There's like psychologists, psychiatrists, counsellors, coaches. I'm a social worker, so you can see social workers as well. Social workers are really big on context if you want someone who wants to understand your whole life. And if you want someone like me, I will understand your whole life before the end of our time together. Um, but there's so many different options. There's breath work, meditation, there's yoga. I did yoga and Pilates, which is huge because it connects the physical, the mental and the spiritual together as well. Mm. Um, there's, there's different options. It's just trying different options, trying and find what fits for you. And it will take time to find what fits for you. Um, but if you are listening and you want to work with me, I do work across Australia, um, through telehealth, but also I, I drive from Gympie down to, to Moreton Bay and, and North Brisbane doing therapy on the road. Um, also, I've got a clinic here in Maroochydore, and the best way to find me is through my website, which is www.mindful-men.com.au, 
Um, and that links to also my social, my social media and the Michael Men podcast as well, which I do weekly as well, sharing inspirational stories of people around the world. Um, like for example, this week we've got an ADHD coach sharing her her journey on what it was like to be diagnosed at 35 with ADHD and and yeah. what happened during childhood and how that impacted her and, and her career as well. So yeah, lots of resources available through the website. Awesome, man. I'll link everything in the show notes. So if you listen to the episode, jump in the bio, everything will be in, in the, all the um, links and stuff will be in the bio. So check it out. But thanks for jumping on, man. I appreciate your time and we had an epic conversation. Yeah, Ryan, thanks so much. And, and keep up with the great work you're doing. You're doing an amazing thing um with the podcast but also with the dad's community as well um i always love to plug the dad's community so yeah keep up the great work and and yeah look forward to the episode coming out cheers brother i'll see you later cheers mate